Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Catholic Connect podcast. I'm so glad that you tracked us down. I hope you're having a blessed day wherever you may be in the Universal Church. Well, Dr. Gavin Ashenton, a great voice in the Catholic Church, joins us all the way from England to talk to us a little bit about his journey of faith to the Catholic Church and also a cautionary word about synods and what we're going through in the Catholic Church right now. Uh, an interesting time, a little bit of a scary time. I totally understand where a lot of Catholics and even non-Catholics are coming from when they express concern about the synod on synodality. It seems like we're just in the middle of this process right now. It's going to be carrying on to next year. We really need to pray for our leaders and pray for the entire church. I think that we can really take this time to learn our faith, understand what scripture and what the catechism of the Catholic Church is telling us, and of course the deposit of faith which never changes, and that is the truth of Jesus Christ revealed to us through Christ himself onto the apostles, the early church fathers, and throughout history, through all of our our popes and leadership, through the saints. Uh, This has all been revealed to us right in scripture. Nothing is changing. The truth never changes, and that's the beauty of our church And just because a few people are making some noise, some noise that uh, really has nothing to do with the truth of Jesus Christ and the Catholic Church, that shouldn't give us too much trouble. I know it's easier said than done, but we should have peace in our hearts that we are in the right spot where we need to be as long as we're living in a state of grace, a sacramental state of grace, we should be of good cheer. And I wanted to share the scripture verse with you from the Gospel of John, from the words of our Lord. He said, I have said this to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And those words are from our Lord and the Gospel of John chapter 16. And so timely because Dr. Gavin Ashenden joins us today. Uh, This was one of the quickest, it felt like the quickest interview that we've ever done. I looked at the time and it was flying, but Dr. Gavin Ashenden, so many great insights and cautionary tales about what direction our leadership is going right now and the importance to pray for the church and to pray especially for those who are who are really afraid of what we see that's going on today in the church and uh, realize that we again we do have the deposit of faith and the scripture the catechism of the catholic church and the truth of jesus christ never changes that is so important and it never ceases to amaze me whenever i talk to someone a uh, fellow Catholic from around the world, whatever country they're from, uh, the kinship of the baptized is something that's very hard to explain to those who are not believers. But boy, when we, uh, this, uh, the brothers and sisters that we have all around the world, we're all fighting the same battle. We, we're all fighting against the reality of evil and the devil, but we're also called to, to greatness. As Pope Benedict XVI says, not to mediocrity, but to greatness and to work with each other along the way. We're journeying, we're in the vineyard of the Lord and trying our best to to raise our families, our children, to help our spouses, most importantly, to get to heaven. But uh, there's there's a lot of ups and downs along the way, but boy, it's great to have the universal church. There's so many good people that are striving for holiness that we can really rely on on this journey. And it's uh, always exciting to talk to someone from uh, from far away, but feels uh, like they're just they're your next door neighbor, someone you know really well. So without further ado, here is Dr. Gavin Ashenden. See you on the other side of the interview, my friends. Well, praise be Jesus Christ now and forever. Well, Gavin Ashenden is a commentator, a podcaster, YouTuber, writer, and a recent convert to the Catholic Church after spending a large portion of his life as a priest and bishop in the Church of England. Now, his adventures took him all over the world and included a stint as chaplain to the Queen of England. The list of credentials is very long, probably too long to mention, but he has found some time in his schedule to talk with his friends in Canada and across the Universal Church. So Dr. Gavin Ashenden, welcome to the Catholic Canuck podcast. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, first of all, I really want to thank and praise God uh, and thank you for responding to the grace to join the church for a time such as this. It's been, uh, there's some pretty wild times in the church right now. So, but first I've got to ask as a a Canadian and a member of the Commonwealth, uh, as you know, uh, have you ever had a chance to to visit Canada uh, in your, uh, in your lifetime? And, and uh, what is your view of the, the church and, and this country in general? 
I, I have. I spent a, a, a year in Canada in 1972, three, okay. uh, mm-hmm. between two and three, uh, but before going up to, uh, to university. Uh, I taught, uh, and then I came back <clears throat> during the summers and taught on a government program, teaching kids in the inner city um, on music programs. I have, an, I have a large number of Canadian friends, and although that was quite a long time ago now, I loved Canada. I thought it was a, a greatly improved version of the United States. And, <laughs> and um, uh, I, I, I think it's the most amazing country. In fact, as a while for an Anglican, I tried to get posted to Canada, but um, uh, but but they wouldn't have me. So at least, I mean, I talked to a couple of bishops, and it never worked out. So <clears throat> I never knew whether that was because I was um, not of the right caliber, or the Holy Spirit was closing the door to my going there. Um, and I've been to a few um, conferences in Vancouver um, at uh, at university there, and uh, so there are bits of Canada that I I know. I have some friends who lived in Banff. Um, and uh, I, I like Canada very much, but I would never have guessed that it was good. It would have gone woke quite so quickly Ooh. and quite mm-hmm. so deeply as it has. That that was a great surprise to me when that began to happen. Well, it seems like it's been a, a long process, uh, you know, for many decades, starting with with Quebec. Uh, mm. You're really a, a profoundly Catholic province and uh, an area of the world that was, uh, you know, not only um, just a hotbed of Catholicism. Uh, uh, but also giving a lot of vocations to other countries in the world. A lot of missionaries came out of there, both both priests and lay brothers and, and sisters, nuns as well. Gavin, and it's been a uh, quite the, uh, how the mighty have fallen, right? The last 60 to 70 years. It seemed to have started with Quebec and it's kind of, you know, funneled to the rest of the country, unfortunately. And, it's um, so interesting you know, because um, yeah. I, over this side of the water, Ireland was similar to Quebec right. in the sense mm-hmm. that it was profoundly mm-hmm. Catholic and gave the most um, astonishing number of vocations. And you wouldn't have, it's almost as if the more Catholic and the more rooted in the faith they were, the more vulnerable they have been to whatever this movement is. Um, I mean, you might take the view that uh, that the most outstanding examples of Catholic piety were targeted from the very beginning, so that if they could fall, then then anything could fall. And of course, unfortunately, certainly, certainly in Ireland, the the phenomenon of sexual abuse and the abuse of children left such a terribly bad taste. I, I should say that my view has always been that of all the institutions that we have, actually the Catholic Church has been one of the least bad for sexual abuse. That's not an excuse of any kind. It's horrific. And and one of the things I have against the present Pope is that he's done almost nothing to make sexual abusers accountable. So this is not in any kind of way uh, intended to defend uh, anyone from sexual abuse. But I noticed that it is the fact it's worse in schools with teachers. It's worse in uniformed organizations like scouts. And of course, the very sadly, the very worst place it is, is, is in terms of family, uh, where other members of the family. So um, but but I just want because it's pilloried so badly with sexual abuse. I wanted to say it's by far the least worst institution. But on the other hand, it should never have happened at all. And the fact that it has happened has caused the most enormous damage to the reputations of the church, particularly in Ireland. And I, I don't know about Quebec. I guess you would you could tell me that. You know, and that's that's interesting. You bring that up, uh, Gavin, because I think we were just talking about Cardinal Pell offline. And yeah. when you have these uh, uh, stories of abuse, the, the legitimate ones are, of course, heartbreaking and, and sad to see. But it also opens the door to being to priests and, uh, and and bishops, and all the way up to the to cardinals being falsely accused. Um, but even that, even when it's proven that it's uh, that it's false, the damage is already done, right, Gavin? And and with with Cardinal Pell, we saw that uh, you know just kind of being guilty in the uh, you know the media and the you know, the populace of, of his, his home country of Australia and, and around the world, just because he was affiliated with the priesthood, right? And I always say too, because I've coached uh, various uh, sports, uh, I've even coached soccer or football, which you probably call it on your side of the pond there, Gavin, but in hockey, but uh, even though there's there's been a, a long history of, of abuse, which is sad, even in sports, uh, that mm. sure, certainly hasn't prevented parents from putting their children into sports. 
And uh, while there are safeguards, I'm glad to say that they're really screening uh, a lot more closely. But we see that uh, regularly every year, stories of sports, or like you mentioned, schools as well. Um, but the, the church, especially the Catholic church, seems to uh, get the most press. And um, I'm not sure how we, uh, you know, we change that conversation. But uh, again, it's probably a reminder that we just really need to pray for our spiritual leaders and our, uh, you know, our lay people, but also our priests and our bishops to, uh, um, you know, just to withstand the wiles of the devil. Because, of course, he's coming for leadership, right? He's going to go for the shepherd. And I think that's part of the explanation as to why the Catholic Church has developed uh, an unreasonable reputation because I think the people have an instinctive hatred of the Catholic Church. They don't understand it. It was certainly true in, in England. One of the things that stopped me becoming a Catholic was that almost within the atmosphere, and certainly uh, with a great deal of historical propaganda, Catholicism was seen as something not very pleasant, not very good, not very wholesome, a bit treacherous, all the kind of tropes of the other, you know, the unpleasant other. And, and I think... You know, there's one's always one can always talk in a number of different languages. One can talk philosophically, sociologically, but I think if we're to talk spiritually, then the only way of understanding the uh, opprobrium that the Catholic Church comes in for in the press is because there's a spiritual element to it. The devil does indeed want to persuade people that the the most effective means of their salvation is something horrible to them. And uh, as a result, um, it it make, it gives us all a much harder hill to climb. And in a way, I'm very glad that I came over as a late convert because, first of all, people are surprised. And they say, well, why would somebody like you want to be a Catholic? And then that, that gives me the opportunity to say, but this is the most extraordinary thing that I've ever come across in my life. I just misunderstood it. And if I've misunderstood it, maybe you have too. And the other thing is that a lot of people uh, tease me not terribly charitably, and say, well, you've jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, all the things you fled in the Anglican Church are now being toyed with in the Catholic Church. And I say, really, that's not the case. You can't imagine I was so stupid not to realize that the Catholic Church as an institution would be attacked by wokery, would be attacked by spiritual corruption, would be attacked by the spirit of the age, would be attacked by the devil. Of course it would, far more so than anywhere else. So, of course, I'll find all the things in Episcopalianism here. But the point is, this is um, this is not out of the frying pan into the fire. It's it's from Dunkirk to the invasion of Normandy. Uh, Dunkirk's Episcopalianism, the battle's lost. They were beaten. <laughs> they've, they've had their ass very badly kicked by the spirit of the age. The, the, the thing has now moved to uh, to the, the home church, and Catholicism has to be defended in what I think has to be described almost as a battle for the end of times, uh, for those people who read Tolkien and understand what the last battle was against Mordor, this has all the feelings of it. I'm, I'm not hugely eschatological, but um, it's made worse by the fact that that I'm I'm in my last decade or, or uh, uh, you know maybe or two, but probably one of my life. So I feel eschatological anyway. But I could never have guessed in the West that we will be struggling with the, the lack of freedom of speech, censorship of control from the government, uh, the distortions of truth from the media, and above all, this profound anti-Catholic prejudice from everywhere. This really does feel like the heat's been turned up and this is fin de siècle at best and maybe the end of times at worst. Well, maybe that's where I can, I can take you back a few years, Gavin, to when you were... Um, Still, I'm not sure if you were a bishop or, or we were a priest at the time, but uh, the time that you were, uh, you were spending time with with the the Queen of England, right? You were you were there. You were you were a big part of uh, of what they were up to and what they were doing. But your exit from uh, that life was surrounded by some controversy, at least controversial in the eyes of the secular world. It had something to do with the speech and Islam. So maybe that's something that you can share with our listeners that aren't as familiar with uh with the story so yeah please do share that uh, with us gavin so um i think the first thing to say was that my becoming a catholic always seemed to me to be a bit like a trapeze act in a in a circus um the trapeze i was on was giving way uh i, I found it very difficult to become a catholic it wasn't easy at all 
but I was aware that the church I was in was in really real trouble. And, uh, and I think I found it difficult to become a Catholic if Anglicanism hadn't given way in the catastrophic way that it has. But mainly, not because of Catholicism's fault, but mainly because of the very powerful propaganda job that had been done against the Catholic Church in the circles I grew up in. So that, that's the first thing. The, the issue, um, so yes, I, I was made a, a chaplain to the Queen. That's a member of the Royal Ecclesiastical Household. I wasn't the only one. There were lots of them. It's a kind of honour done to people uh, often thought to be on kind of fast track for promotion in the church. But and, but it's it's like so many English things, it's much more a matter of pantomime and social pretense than it is of substance. It used to be substantial when the monarchy was Catholic, because at that point the king gathered around him 3,000 priests so that mass could be celebrated wherever they were, because kings moved and queens moved around a lot. Uh, they, they, they toured, they... They went, they went, they fought, they invaded other countries, they, they went around their realm. And whenever the court went, there had to be priests to celebrate mass. So in those days, before 1520, uh, there was a great deal of purpose to being a royal chaplain. Protestants didn't really know how to use them, so they turned them into a band of preachers. And they located them in one of the palaces in London. And we were wheeled out for pretty occasions. We wore, we wore scarlet cassocks, making us look like cardinals, because... The Church of England has always mimicked Catholicism uh, in, in the way it dresses, in the way it does liturgy. Um, but essentially, we were decorations on the cake. Um, so it's nice to be a decoration on the royal cake. You get to meet the royal family. And as it happened, my father was a shipmate of Prince Philip. They served together on the same ship. They were first and second lieutenants together on the North Sea convoys to Russia. So there was a, you know, there was a connection. I, I was able, I was able to talk to Prince Philip uh, about things that. He and my father had in common, which which was, you know, made it slightly less just ceremonial. But um, I I had realised for a long time that the dechristianization of England was developing very quickly, and partly because I came became a Christian through an evangelical gateway. Uh, I've always been convinced that you have to share the gospel. Uh, I mean, you could call me an evangelical Catholic if you if if you wanted to use labels. And also I'd interested myself in Russia. So in the 1980s, I'd smuggled Bibles into Russia and, and medicine. And I had become profoundly aware of the need to evangelize a country that had become atheist and Marxist. So if you like, the, the, the primacy of communicating the faith was something that was always very big for me. I couldn't, and, and I'd, been a, I'd been a cosmetic Christian. I'd been, I'd, you know, I'd been part of a formal religious family which I thought was a waste of time. And so when I, you know, when I found Jesus for real, uh, the difference was so big, I really did want to tell people about him. And this wasn't just an emotional thing. I could see then, as I see much more clearly now, that all the values that Jesus brings to his plan to reconfigure human beings are at the center of everything we value in Western civilization. The whole business of forgiveness, of the sanctity of the human person, uh, of, of the capacity for, com for confession, uh, of, of the notion of holy and holy government, government that's accountable to God as much as to the people. There are a whole series of things, of free speech above all, freedom of conscience. I mean, the, the list of Christian virtues goes on, and you only get them in Christianity. They're not to be found in Islam. They're not to be found in Marxism. And so as the gap between our culture and Christ grew, it was clear to me that I had a job to do uh, in telling people about Jesus, if only to save our culture, let alone to save individual souls. Um, and I spent 25 years at a very progressive university. It involved quite a lot of interfaith work. I became very familiar with Islam. I, I, I taught a course on uh, Islamic, on monotheistic mysticism. And I had a number of, of Islamic friends. And I discovered really quite early on that the colonization of Europe through immigration was one of the major platforms of Islamic uh, expansion. Um, and, and no one talks about it. The media have banned you talking about it. You're deemed to be Islamophobic. But my friends told me that we have, we have this goal. When we get to a certain proportion of a city, we, we're going to say we want is, we want Sharia law here. This is an Islamic community. And if, and if you're stupid enough to let us in in the numbers that allows us to do that, 
well, too bad for you, so much better for us. And so because I was familiar with Islam, I understood the Quran, I understood a certain amount of Islamic theology, though it's problematically very, very foreign to the Western mind. Um, every so often when the media, because I was, I was, I was available to the media for a number of reasons. I had my own radio show on the BBC, and um, uh, I, I was I was a little bit known. Uh, the media would ask me questions about Islam, and I would tell them the truth in as succinct a way as I could. And the 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 response was always horror. How, how could this civilized academic be talking in these shocking, prejudiced terms? But I was always very careful to talk about the facts and to quote from the Quran and to give the surah number I was talking about and. The Times once gave me a leader column to talk about the theory of abrogation, the way in which the end of the Quran, where the more, most of the violence is, takes priority in Quranic theology against the earlier bits where the nice verses are. Because people would trot out the nice verses. They'd misquote them, they'd miscontextualize them, and they say, clearly this summarizes Islam. And the answer is, no, it doesn't, because there are more violent and hostile verses that take priority. Um, it's a bit like a, a card game. Uh, the, the more violent verses have a higher, sort of, a higher in the suit. Anyway, this, this brought me a little bit into the public eye. Um, my, my daughter would get up in the morning when she was a teenager and say, oh, daddy, you're in the newspapers again. This is going to make life difficult for me at school. Can you turn it down a bit, please? Um, and I knew that I was using the platform of being one of the Queen's chaplains to um, to further the cause. I mean, if you've got it, you should use it. Um, and I also knew I'd run out of road at some point. You know, that, that was perfectly clear. What I was doing was not acceptable <laughs> society um and i would be cancelled i knew that the question was choosing if i could choose when to be cancelled and so uh, what actually happened was there is a, a cathedral in scotland so this is a different province it's got nothing to do with me in england and uh, in this cathedral the very silly shallow and ignorant dean decided on the feast of the epiphany an important fe festival even for anglicans to get rid of St. Paul, the epistle, and instead to put in uh, a reading from the Quran. And he had it written in Arabic, so nobody understood it. But actually, it was one of the most significant parts of the Quran, which denounced Jesus. Allah has no, has no son. In other words, in a subtle way, the Muslim contingent had said, were basically putting the boot in and saying, this is all a farce. Jesus is not the son of God. And it was you know, in, in, in Arabic, so it didn't, it didn't cause immediate offense unless you know what the surah was. Well, I, I saw about that and I was disgusted and I was really shocked and horrified. It was comes quite close to blasphemy. But I said to myself, um, it's a different province. Uh I I don't have any I don't have any immediate responsibility or leverage for a different province. I need I need to know my place. If it happened in England, I'd do something about it straight away. So I didn't do anything. But two or three days later, some of the students, the kids who went to, to the Eucharist in the cathedral, partly because my reputation, wrote to me. And they said, we, we've complained. We're the congregation. We're the baptized Christians. We're outraged at this. But when we've got complained, the dean, who's a homosexual, has gone to the police and accused us of homophobia. And the police have knocked on our doors because we've complained about the swapping of St. Paul for Mohammed. We're in real trouble. Could you help us? And so that's the point when I became, I thought, okay, this, I don't say no to this, I say yes. So I then wrote a letter to the Times. That might not sound very much, but but letters, the letters page of the Times is a kind of fairly serious platform for public debate in England. And um, and they published me quite a lot. I was well known in the Times, as well as being a, a, a writer of some of the leaders. Um, and um, well, all hell broke loose. <laughs> And so uh, the view was taken in the palace, not by the queen herself, she doesn't make these decisions, but essentially by a group, a committee, I would think, uh, headed up by the Lord Chamberlain, who's um, who's responsible for the running of the things. And, and basically, I got the phone call couched in the most enormously polite terms, very sophisticated, very polite, but, but, but pointing out, actually, the queen can't be associated with your views. They're, they're too dangerous, they're too difficult. They might be true, <laughs> but but she can't afford to be connected with anything politically contentious. And and then basically, as we we talked this through together, the the, you know, the 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 answer to it all was obvious. I either swear myself to silence or I resign.
Well, I hadn't come that far to swear myself to silence. So I said, that's fine, I'll resign. I don't mind at all. As it turned out, being the former Queen's chaplain in the press is quite as as, as colourful as being the Queen's chaplain. In fact, it's even better because you have no responsibility whatsoever. So this this gave me the status and cut me free. It was great. And um, the Queen did me a favour in terms of uh, getting me to resign with the maximum publicity. I wouldn't have done that. I wanted to sneak away quietly, you know. Okay, I was always going to cross the line. This is it. I wish it hadn't happened, but it has. But I didn't want to draw attention to myself. But the, the, in the way my resignation handled, the Queen herself made sure that it got maximum publicity. And by that means, I found myself on Fox News and, and on Australian News. And you know, then people began to misquote me, so I put my own web page up. And then basically that propelled me into the public space in, a, uh, in, in an alternative fashion. And... Um, and it hasn't stopped since then. Hmm. Why do you think it is that when it comes to, to Islam, uh, when we're seeing recently here with the, the attacks in the Holy Land and fighting in Gaza and Israel right now, it seems that a lot of not only, you know, political leaders, but also, um, you know, just, just regular people, you know, think of university campuses, uh, young people, why is there so much support for um, Islam, I guess, in, in some ways? And I shouldn't say support, but just maybe maybe some sympathy or empathy. I'm not sure what the right word is, but um, <clears throat> it seems that it's, it's, a real, it's a real swear word, especially if you're a politician, to say anything against them. Uh, there's that saying that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And this unholy alliance between secular Marxism and Islam seems to be coming to the forefront right now and working especially against Christianity and Western civilization. Well, again, there are a number of different reasons, and this this, this is both complex and simple. I'll, I'll try and keep it as simple as I can. Politically, what you've described, the political answer to what you said is that the numbers of Muslims are already at a point when politicians can't afford to offend them. So, uh, and they vote together on block. Um, they usually vote for, for progressive parties. Uh, and there's a novel by written by, by um, a Belgian, a Dutchman called Hulevix, called Submission, which is about a projected um, political coalition between Islam and the left during a French election. And, and, and he foresees that and writes a novel about it. And it's, quite frightening and everyone should read it. It's very informative. But um, the other reason is that uh, what wokery has done is to take some Christian ethics and to strip them away from Jesus and to weaponize them. So as Tom Holland has said, one of the things that Christianity has done is to sanctify the victim. Jesus the victim becomes the victim for us. And through being a victim, he becomes the conqueror and the redeemer. But first of all, he's a victim and no other society has sanctified the victim. The victim's the loser. Uh, in the same way Americans call people you loser, that's the desanctified victim. That's the people, that's the one who gets kicked at the bottom of the pile. But the sanctified victim has a certain status which the left have used because it's about the transfer of power. And so what they've done is they've identified a series of victims, uh, women, gays, Muslims, anyone at the bottom of the pile, uh, as far away from a straight white Catholic man as you can get in order to take power away from straight white men, Catholic or otherwise, and to bestow it on, on alternative uh, sources. And so consequently, the left and Islam have, have cooperated together. Islam has been very grateful for the free pass it's been given by the left. And so the left have presented Islam rather like like women or gay people or, or non-binary people as as victims who need protecting. It's an incredible misreading of what Islam is. Islam is one of the most powerful agencies in the world and has been set upon world domination, mainly by armed jihad, but where it can't do armed jihad through immigration uh, and also propaganda. Um, and you might be surprised by that, but that's another conversation we could go down. And so... Um, this mispresentation by by the left of Islam is what has produced it, a level of sympathy that anyone who's fallen out of love with Christendom uh, and the old order immediately 
gravitates towards. Uh, the left have made a very serious mistake. My analysis was that until about 2025 to 30, the left would attack Christianity and Christendom and, and essentially decapitate it, kneecap it, uh, bring it to, to its knees. And that process is very nearly complete. Um, and then what would happen is that the, that the moment the Muslim uh, community got to a certain level, somewhere between 8 and 12%, the Nazis took over Germany with 12% of the population being signed up to the Nazi party. Once you get 12% demographically, demo, demo, you can then take over the democracy. And that's how the Nazi party achieved power. There's some very serious and worrying parallels with the 1930s in Germany. And I think the best thing to do is essentially to see Islam as a form of far-right political activism. Because, again, one of the reasons why Islam... So another reason that, that why this has happened, apart from the soft path the left has given Islam, is the complete ignorance of Islam. Essentially, people think of Islam as a kind of Arabic Christianity or a Middle Eastern uh, Christianity for brown people who aren't quite as sophisticated as us. I'm, I'm parodying, obviously. That's not my view. That's a kind of what I think of as a popular view. It's a most terrible error. Islam is profoundly sophisticated, and it's completely different, both from, well, I was going to say from Judaism, uh, perhaps not so completely different, but completely different from Christianity, because it's a hybrid of both being a, a faith system and a political system. And the difficulty with that is when you think you're dealing with a faith system, I mean, you treat Islam like it's a, a version of Christianity, personal belief, personal commitment, personal value system. You can often find out you're dealing with a monolithic political power. And if you treat it as a monolithic political power, Islam often turns around and says, hey, but we're a faith system. Give us a break. Um, and, and it really wrong foots uh, the West, and above all, it wrong-foots ignorant secularists who have no idea. I mean, first of all, they don't understand Christianity. They have the weirdest and misshapen ideas. And then they even worse understand Islam. And the, the left thinks that it's going to be able to subjugate Islam. And in my judgment, it's completely wrong. So I think what will happen in, in, the, in the West in the next decade is that once Christianity has been properly subjugated, and we're really we're quite near that now, we don't have the freedom to speak out. We run the we have to home educate our children. We have to, as as um, Rod Dreyer has says, withdraw from civic society where we're where we're now in serious danger and try and create networks under the radar to protect ourselves. But the, the moment the left have dealt with us, they'll try and deal with Islam and they'll discover they can't. It's much more powerful, much more sophisticated. Much, it, it's it's fifteen hundred years old, and the, the both Islam and Marxism are Christian heresies. Um, one from the outside of Christianity, one from the inside. Islam is from the inside. It's it, um, it's a monotheism which has borrowed aspects of Jewishness and Christianity, mainly Jewishness actually, uh, and and Marxism is a heresy from the outside. It takes the eschatological utopianism of Christianity and turns it into political ideals it seeks to realize by force uh, and, and, and uses collective instead of individualistic values. They're both very dangerous to us and they're very serious competitors. And one of the things that Christians haven't understood is that these are not just alternative lifestyles. They are competitors who want to wipe Christianity out. In fact, their very success is predicated on destroying Christianity. And I'm not, I'm not saying that as a kind of um, a neurotic apologist for Christianity. It's simply the case. Islam is dedicated to imposing itself in any way it can. It's, that's what jihad is, spiritual and military, on society. Uh, and, and it also has some very competent evangelists. And, and Marxism uh, says that we, we won't be able to manage communism and Marxism until the whole world is Marxist and communist and capitalism doesn't exist anymore, or the experiment won't work. And so both of them are in their DNA committed to the eradication of Christianity. And it just amazes me that that the church in its, in its ignorance and its laziness and its out-of-touchness and its supineness and the way it's adopted the spirit of the age can't see what his enemies are telling it. And they, they're saying to it, you have no right to exist and we're going to overcome you. And the only option for Christians is to say, we're going to shape up and be real Christians. 
because only real Christianity can overcome. Only, only real Christianity is appealing enough. Only real Christianity is vigorous enough and strong enough. Real Christianity can and has overcome Marxism and Islam because Jesus is so much more attractive than Marx or Muhammad. And that's where our strength lies. But the church has to be clear about, first of all, what the issue is, and it has to be devoted to Jesus and to love Jesus and understand him and to share Jesus to people who badly need him and have never had the chance to meet him because we've been so, we've been so, I don't know, flaccid in, in our love and our discipleship. Mm -hmm. And Mohammed and Karl Marx have a thing in common is that they're both six feet under and our Lord and Savior Jesus <laughs> Christ right. is it's risen from today. the tomb <laughs> yeah, and rules. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I, I was trying. So I got into a rant. I could have gone on. I thought that was the best place. I to love start. it. I love it, Gavin. <laughs> Thank you so much. I love this. This has been fantastic. Secularism and Islam, uh, both departing from the truth of Jesus Christ and taking souls away too, Gavin. I think Absolutely. That's what, as Catholics, we need to say, okay, they're coming for Christianity. We need to first. We need to just admit that. Just put it out there, as opposed to trying to you know have these kind of alliances with them, uh, being um, accepting or tolerant of of their views is actually, it's affecting the way we can save souls and evangelize other people. And I think this is a good segue into, into the synod that we're seeing. Um, <clears throat> of course, the synod itself is as history in the Catholic church, there have been local synods of bishops and in meetings, but to be honest with you, Gavin, I haven't been really familiar with the synods at all, but especially the synod on synodality, it's just, it's such a, such a strange play on words to me. But uh, the first time I was really, um, familiar with it or heard of it or read about it was actually from the Church of England because they have uh, the Synod of the Church of England or something like that. It's been going on for a long time, for for decades. I wanted to ask you about, you know, what your experiences were like with the Synod in the Church of England and maybe some cautionary tales of what you saw there over the last several years and, and what you're seeing now. Are there some parallels with what we're seeing in the Vatican today and, and what you've seen in the past in the Church of England? I I can't tell you how frustrated I am and how difficult it is to find moderate words to deal with this. Um, it, it's it's a bit like watching lemmings cross the road. And as the lemmings get mown down by the traffic, you want to say to the lemmings who are lining up, hey, don't cross the road. You'll get knocked over and squashed. Look, look, just look at the, look at the attrition rate on the road. And then the lemmings you're talking to say, no, no, it doesn't apply to us. And they walk out and then they're squashed. And, and the next group and the next group. And the reason I say that is because the play, the playbook that's being, um, the strategy that's being used at the Synod on Synodality has been used twice before uh, in the last 50 years. And the first time it was used by Episcopalians in the United States. That's where it started. And um, what they discovered was uh, we can't change doctrine because that requires a real fist fight in the church. And, um, and, and it'll take too long and we might lose it and it's too problematic. So what we'll do is instead we'll change pastoral practice and spirituality. And, uh, and, then, and then slowly doctrine will follow. Uh, lex orandi, lex credendi. And so, um, so it starts with prayers and blessings and uh, and inclusion. And then what happened with the Americans was there came a tipping point where anybody who wasn't on board was thrown out. So the whole inclusion thing was a lie. Uh, the whole pastoral compassion thing was a lie. It was simply an intention to change the church's view on sexuality. And there's a, there's a reason for that. And that is, if you don't believe in evil, and you don't believe in heaven and hell, then instead of engaging in salvation, you engage in therapy. And so what the church has done for the last 50 years, it's become a therapeutic organization in which it's wanted to make people feel better about themselves. And that's why it's got so energized about the marginalized, the excluded, the people who don't feel welcome enough. This is all the language of a third-rate therapeutic process. Third rate, because it doesn't even work as therapy, um, because it's given up the spiritual struggle, and above all, it's given up heaven and hell. So that happened in the Episcopal Church in America, and then the, 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 the church split, and uh, the conservative traditionalist Anglicans started uh, one of many splinter groups. And then it, ca it came to England. And those of us in England said, hey, wait a moment, look at this. 
just see what happened in the States. That's what you're starting here. And the activists are using the same language and the same strategy. It's just it's just A, A B, C, D, E, F, G. Don't do this. Why would you do this? We said in the Church of England. Uh, and it includes, too, the ordination of women, of course, because there's a very close uh, alliance uh, politically between feminism and, and homosexuality. But also, I would say it's a very close alliance spiritually. I think the uh, the intention is to distort and invert God's pattern and purpose for us. And feminism has been the main battering ram to do that. And, other, and, and everything else has happened in the wake of, of feminism. And so it's partly by not understanding what feminism is. And that's easily done because it's now in its fourth wave. It was never WYSIWYG. It was never what you see is what you get. It's a very complex process. And uh, and people have not felt able to analyze it. It's been very... So any one can only analyze it uh, retrospectively. So then the then the Anglicans started doing this, and a number of us said, "But it's perfectly obvious what you're doing. It's it's spiritually deceptive. It's spiritually treacherous. Uh, it's evangelistically crass. In the once you turn yourself into a third rate therapy society, who would want to join? If I want therapy, I'll go and get it from a decent therapist. I won't join a third rate organization of a bunch of amateurs who." wander around damaging each other because there aren't enough boundaries or agreed procedures. It's a crazy thing. I mean, religion is not nice as a thing. Christianity is wonderful. Redemption is wonderful. But religion without God transforming it and irradiating it is a very dangerous and unpleasant thing. If I want to join a club of people, I'll go and join an opera group or a choir or, or a cricket club. I'm not going to go and join the church. Why would I want you know, it's crazy. There's nothing beautiful about religion per se, unless it's irradiated by the presence of Christ in the sacraments and in the gospel and in his body. So then, then <laughs> so they did this and it happened. Uh, and now I'm joined the Catholic Church. And right, right at the beginning of the sin on the sin, they're using the same language. They're saying the same things. It's the same playbook. And I'm, I'm saying to Catholic friends, please don't be stupid. Look at the lemmings. Look at the look at what happened to them. Just just for a moment, look at what happened to liberal Protestantism. It's completely dead, and they did it by pursuing this path. How is it possible that any Catholic with any sense can sign up to a process like this that is simply putting a playing Russian roulette? You just pull the trigger until the bullet in the chamber blows your brains out. It might take you one one circulation of the of the gun or six it doesn't matter but it will absolutely happen it is so stupid politically theologically sociologically spiritually uh it's a death wish and i i you know as you can see i'm quite energized by it but yes. it's because how is it, it how is it possible stuff. well mm -hmm. i i think i should be too and so you know people have said jumping from the frying pan into the fire. And I'm saying, no, no, it's my job to say I've seen all this firsthand. I fought it firsthand. I've analyzed it. I've had it right up here. You know, the other day in Synod, that someone was reported as saying, and, and I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful, um, but, you know, there was this binary girl and she didn't feel welcome and she killed herself. Now, suicide is absolutely terrible. It's mainly terrible for men, as mental health problems in men are absolutely disastrous in our culture. But I've been facing gay activists at, ev at every stage when they're losing the argument, they pull out the suicide one. They say, you know, you're being so unwelcoming that actually you're going to kill people. In fact, I've been called a murderer on the BBC by one of the main uh, proponents because your kind of language, your kind of rejection, it's going to kill gay people. And and the arts, you know, first of all, it, it makes, first of all, it's emotional blackmail. Secondly, it, it mistakes correlation with causation. It is true that people kill themselves. They kill themselves for a variety of reasons, and it's not ever easy to know what it is. But it's almost certainly nothing to do with the fact that there are Christians who believe in the stability and the wholesomeness of the human uh, agenda as, as it's given to the church. In fact, the problem is it's exactly the opposite. The statistics are, of course, it's true that, that there's a degree of mental distress amongst gay people. And now, of course, the argument is being used in the trans community even more. But the problem is that if, 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 you, if you find yourself in a situation where your sexual romantic appetites 
uh, are directly opposed to where your biology is and your body is, that's going to cause you some stress. It doesn't that matter what other people think of you. That in itself is a pretty conflicted place to be. Uh, and, and it's not. And so it requires understanding and love and compassion. Um, but actually, sometimes the, the best way of, you know, just telling a child how not to burn itself is, look, don't strike the matches, because if you strike the matches, you'll burn yourself. Does it seem to you, Gavin, that it's the reality of the denial of the existence of the demonic, of evil, but also the denial that Jesus died on a cross and redemptive suffering is called for all of us. We all have crosses that we need to bear. And some people have some real heavy crosses. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's this great mystery of, of suffering that, that we'll probably know the full, well, we will know the full picture at the end when all is revealed. But, uh, you know, the Catholic church has said for forever, for centuries that this is, this is your path to holiness. And yet we're seem to be we're, we're, we're steering away from that path and we don't even mention the sacraments and the, you know, the, the gift of, of what reconciliation is and confession, uh, the gift of the Eucharist that we can receive on a daily basis. And even something as, as beautiful as the sacrament of matrimony, of marriage between a man and a woman. And it's not easy all the time that you're married. I'm married. I'm sure our wives would agree that it's not easy being married to us, right? We can be a source of, of a cross for our, our wives too sometimes, but that's the the picture that Jesus wants to to bring to us, and that that there it takes three to get married. Obviously, as as Archbishop Sheen even wrote a, a a great book about that, is that God needs to be the center of our marriage, but He also is the center of our church, and He's got so many great gifts that He's given to us, and that's why I find that even when they had the listening sessions here the last couple of years, because I was I was very naive, Gavin, to be honest with you, I I volunteered at our local parish to just kind of check it out. I thought maybe this is going to be pointing to how we can get people to confession more, how we can deepen people's prayer life or their devotional life and they can draw closer to Christ. But it seemed like the, it very quickly became evident to me that this was a bone that people had to pick with the church and all the injustices and people being left out and not included. And given that the, the premise of the synod itself was to be the listening church, and now that we're seeing that these these kind of the, the initial meetings here that we've seen in the last few weeks has been so secretive, it just makes you, it really raises a lot of red flags, doesn't it, Kevin? It really does. Well, it's because they weren't telling the truth. It was it was not a premise to be the listening church. The, the premise of being the listening church was the presentational strategy they used to set up a system by which they could change the culture of the church. They're not listening. They haven't invited traditionalists in to listen to them. It's it's just not true. They're only they're only listening to a certain group of people. They've predisposed the whole process of the synod to be directed towards the so-called marginalised. If you uh, if you read the document that came out, um, it's it's written in Marxist in cultural Marxist terms. It's all about inclusion and marginalisation. We're back to we're back to um, therapy again. I just wanted to pick up the, web, the, the the my internet froze halfway through, and I I missed some of what you said. But you you it's interesting that you began by saying that at the heart of the problem here is a misunderstanding or um, an ignorance or displacement of the reality of evil. So in the last few days, um, I've had a number of pastoral encounters, including a letter from an Australian uh, doctor who wrote to me saying. I only recently came back to faith, and I came back through reading Richard Raw. Uh, Richard Raw. I then met Pope Francis, and I love him very much. And I'm really upset that you are critical of Pope Francis, and I think you're destroying the faith I've only just found my way back to. You know, shame on you. So I thought about this very carefully, um, not because I thought he was right, but because I wanted to understand in my own mind uh, the difference between Pope Francis, this Australian doctor, and me. Uh, and and the answer, I think, is that it's not just that they're practicing therapy, and I think I'm representing the language of salvation. But I think it's that they it's it's the uh, acceptance or the welcoming of universalism. It's the ignoring of evil, um, and um, it's it. The, I, I thought it's a, it's a bit like an analogy came to me, and I thought, well, it's a bit like soccer. Um, they're doing religion like 
people would do soccer if there was no opposition. Imagine they couldn't see the opponents when they came to play them. You know, they they just they had this this blinkeredness so that when the opposite team came, they 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 couldn't see them. And so the football they would play, 11 people amongst themselves in a kind of exhibition match, would be a very different thing to what happens when two teams get together and one tries to overcome the other. So they're doing Christianity as if there's no opposition, as if there is no evil. And it, and it, and it's based on the fact that everybody's included. Now, this isn't what Jesus taught. It's not what the church has experienced. It's not what the prophets or the mystics have told us. It's exactly the opposite. So they're, they're doing a form of universalistic therapy uh, in terms of religion. And that's why he likes Richard Rohr, and that's why he likes Pope Francis, and that's why he doesn't like me, but you're absolutely right. And again, one of the reasons I feel passionately about this is because somewhere through my middle years, I fell in love with Carl Gustav Jung. Uh, I, I had some very profound experiences of evil when I became a Christian early on, and and I took the easy way out, for partly because uh there was in my extended family a degree of mental illness, and I found it very difficult to cope with this and to manage it, particularly because there's an element of overlap between mental illness and demonic assault. And and the, the two things they have in, in common is that, um, first of all, uh, you're told that, that there is no hope, and secondly, you're told uh, by, by the demons or by your own mind or by both that it's all your own fault. And this evacuation of hope and this accusation, this self-accusation, self-denigration, the self-hatred uh, is so powerful that it crushes people completely. To live without hope and to believe that you're at fault is, 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 is a burden that people can't bear. And um, it's one of the ways in which the devil whispers debilitating things into our ear. It's always there is no hope and it's your fault. And interestingly enough, it also appears to be uh, the response of people who are suffering from a great deal of mental stress and are right on the edge mentally again. They feel, I'm never going to get out of this. I'm in despair. There is no hope. And it's my fault. I found it very difficult. Uh, I found it too difficult, given the proximity of mental illness that I was being asked to deal with, to, to manage that. And so I, I took the easy way out and I became a Jungian um, there were some good reasons. Jung was the antidote to Freud. Uh, Jung was a very helpful ally when it came to combating my atheist colleagues at university. But his whole notion of the shadow uh, displaces evil and turns it in, turns darkness instead into a form of uh, unreconciled acceptance of the kind of off-limits part of our own personality. And whilst the shadow has some useful things to tell us. It's not wholly untrue. Uh, it simply excludes all metaphysical awareness of evil and once again turns the metaphysical fight into a therapeutic process. I bought into that for a while. Uh, and, and indeed, one of the reasons that I became a Catholic, one of the things that kicked me out of it was that, that I became demonically oppressed, that the demons came for me. And uh, I, I remember I had two very, very bad experiences. And I happened to have a friend who was a Roman Catholic diocesan exorcist called John. And um one point when this this one of these bouts began, I phoned John up and I said, I said, John, either either I'm going mad, which I, I fear, but I don't think I am, though it looks like it, or else I'm really under the hammer. Uh, and he just heard the symptoms and he said, I'm afraid you're really under the demonic hammer. I said, what can I do? And he said, only the rosary, nothing else. And I said, well, I don't really pray the rosary. I'm quite well read in Mary. I'm quite well read in um, in women mystics. and uh, uh, But I don't do it. I haven't given myself to Mary as mother. I haven't I haven't known her as the new Eve, as the Ark of the Covenant. I, I know her only theoretically. And I don't pray the rosary. And he said, oh, lad, he said, you're going to have to choose between going to hell and getting to know and love our mother. So I said, okay, I'll get to know and love our mother because hell is dreadful. And so I began praying the rosary. And then I discovered how immensely powerful the rosary was, both in the way it changed the symptoms that I was dealing with, but also, you know, it, I'd been praying the Jesus prayer for a long time because I'd become under the influence of, um, of, of Greek Orthodox Christianity from the beginning. But 
and I, I I practice hesychastic prayer, repetitive prayer, as part of my own spirituality. But I was faced with the astonishing experience that, that the rosary was just more powerful than the Jesus prayer. Now, the, that, that set me up a theological conundrum. Why should Our Lady appear to have more weight in the spiritual struggle than our Lord does? Surely that, that you know, there's going to be a... And, and there is a perfectly good theological answer for that, but it's not, it's not obvious to a Protestant. <laughs> and so it took me a while to work through the theology of that. But... but uh, that's another reason why I'm really quite passionate about this distinction between universalism and therapy in the church and the fact that we're in a very profound spiritual fight. The salvation of our souls and our neighbor's souls depends upon it. And if we don't understand that that's the kind of football we're playing, where there's an opponent, if we don't understand that that's the struggle we've been called to on behalf of Jesus you know, onward, Christian soldiers, we really are fighting. We don't intend to take to take a, a gun or a sword to anybody. The fight is one that takes place on our knees. It takes place through prayer and purgation and repentance and faith and hope and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, um, but but it, it's absolutely a fight. And any kind of Christianity that doesn't involve a fight like that is therapy. It's not Christianity. But therapy is very attractive to people because it's quite frightening to, to to deal with evil and also quite complex. It frightened me off. Uh, and and we've been trained by so many agencies to think therapeutically uh, and to swallow the bait of the therapeutic promises that, that um, somehow self-acceptance can make us better. Not realising at all that the self-acceptance they're talking about is a form of idolatry. The whole of Jungian... The whole of the Jungian framework is about discovering the God of the self, but it's not. But but it but it is the God who is the capital self. In the end, the Jungian philosophy, the whole depth psychology movement is a form of idolatry because the no, and it kind of it, it pretends to skip skip part of the thing and slip into kind of the the unifying aspect of mysticism, but it isn't that. It's a trick. So once once again, that's one of the reasons why. Uh, I'm fairly articulate about the, these two Christianities, and I'm very sorry to see the Catholic Church's hierarchy embracing what is effectively heresy. Mm -hmm. And maybe, and you've already touched on maybe what the antidote is, and that's the rosary, and that's prayer. Absolutely. Uh, that's the intercession of the saints. But what about the, you know, the standard, you know, regular Joe Blow lay Catholic like myself that's, uh, you know, we can't go to the Vatican and participate in the Synod of Synodality. Even if we wanted to, we couldn't do it. Uh, you know, of course, there's all kinds of, you know, there's wars in the world. There's political unrest everywhere. But specifically to being a Catholic, what are some things that you can encourage our listeners to do, Gavin, in this time of confusion? You know, we're, we're seeing this, you know, a, a poor example really being set at a high level, which is is hard for us to to see, but we still have the answer. We still have the truth of Jesus Christ. So, is there, yeah, some kind of a you know a hopeful message that you can give to to us to uh, you know to kind of help sustain us through this this difficult time? Yes, let's let's go to the kitchen and use another analogy. Let's let's say we have some we've had a big fry up breakfast and our frying pans are are full of grease. There's a great deal of grease and it's cold and set and it's almost impossible to move, but a touch of hot water and detergent and it just melts away. And so Catholicism with the help of the Holy Spirit is the detergent. And 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 what I'm suggesting is that just by saying our prayers, by loving Jesus, by invoking Our Lady, by asking St. Michael, what we we cleanse, it's it's a bit like um I remember learning why monks were there. Monks were there because one of the things they did was they they bought a, a power and a, a commitment to prayer, particularly in the nighttime, particularly when the sun goes down. I remember my spiritual director, a very good uh, Anglican abbot, who was in an enclosed order, and he was saying, one of the reasons why we go to bed when it's dark and get up in the middle of the night and get up at dawn is because humanity does all its worst stuff in the dark. And we, we get up in the dark and we pierce the dark with prayer. And the prayer that we have 
has an effect way beyond. Uh, it's a bit, if you know, it's a, it, it, the ecosphere of prayer stretches a very long way. If people are ecologically aware and they say to themselves, well, you know, actually, I, I, I mean, I, I think the ecological position is alarmist and I don't believe in it, but that's another matter. But nonetheless, it's taught us to understand that that, that we can affect the ecology of far on a far wider plane by what we do individually. And I think that's a good parable for the spiritual life. So it just requires Christians to take Jesus into them in the Mass. It requires us to pray the rosary. And we act as a kind of solvent against the sludge and the grime that the people who are not in Christ carry and constitute. And much of this happens at a spiritual level, at an unseen level. But it's very powerful. Um, and we know it's powerful because when people meet holiness, when they when they they meet Jesus in someone, uh, the presence of Jesus, uh, it, it brings light, it brings hope, it brings peace, it brings calm, it brings reconciliation. It 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 happens mainly out of sight. But again, the same it's the same thing that you know, if you go swimming in the sea, you discover there are undercurrents that have a totally different temperature down your toes or your knees and what's good up on the surface. And again, the spiritual life is like that. It produces very powerful undercurrents that affect the ground on which people are standing. We just, you know, I'm a layman now. I, I would have wanted to be ordained, but the, the price was being silent in public. So um uh, once again, <laughs> I'd already learned that I'm not to commit myself to silence. Um so I'm a layman, and uh, I know that the, the the greatest effect I can have is by making sure that I pray the liturgy through the day and I continue to pray the rosary. And it's not about my well-being. It's about changing the the ecosphere around me, the people I come in into contact with. It's very interesting. Again, sometimes you, you discover that if someone's demonized, they just have to meet you, and the demons begin to twitch. It, it, it's almost it's not un, not unlike what happened in the Gospels. Wherever Jesus went, um, the the demons were kind of forced to the surface uh, by the by the kingdom, the presence of the kingdom of heaven. And we, in a much more diluted way, we have that same effect. And that's partly why we attract such vitriol and such anger. Essentially, that's why Jesus said, "Blessed are you if they if they persecute you because they persecuted the prophets." Holiness brings out the bit, the scum of bitterness and of rebellion. And so, in a strange kind of way, saying your prayers makes you a really disruptive force because it it it, it brings the it, it brings the toxicity to the surface. Now, this is unpleasant for us because people shout at us and dislike us and call us names and they often blaspheme but because one of the things it does is it it brings it to the surface and so that which was you know you can deal with this and it kind of proves us right <laughs> when we say we're in this great spiritual struggle and people are kind of spitting and blaspheming it it's it's um it's a bit like you know once again why why do people hate the people the jews the people of god why is this this completely irrational unreasonable and off the scale hatred of the jews that doesn't apply to anybody else and the answer is it's because they're the chosen people and the devil hates them more than anybody else and if people allow the devil in then they will act as vehicles for the devil's hatred and so the poor jews continue to get this dreadful persecution in the same way that also so do Christians for the same reasons. That's right. And the visual of, I believe it was St. Augustine that said, the truth is like a lion. And when you let the lion out, you don't have to worry about taking care of it. You just let it let it loose and let it do, yeah, it, let it do its absolutely. thing. And when it's in front of a group of people, there's going to be chaos for sure. Because the truth is Jesus Christ, right? Gavin, it, it, he's personified. Absolutely. The truth personified absolutely. is Jesus and that's why the Catholic Church is home to so many spectacular conversions. You know, the people that you at least expect ever to come into the church come into the church because that that is what that is what Jesus does. That is what the truth of Jesus Christ does to people. It is that, you know, it's uh, th that disruptor, that disruptor, that that twitch of your conscience, yeah. uh, knowing that the truth is in front of you. And uh, 
yeah, that's why we have so many spectacular stories and beautiful stories. And there's more to come True. too. True. And that's the, the, the age we live in. Gavin, I feel like we're just only scratching the surface of what we should be, uh, what we can talk about. It's been just an absolute honor to talk to you. Where can people find uh, some of your, um, oh, your resources uh, and some of your works? Would you share that I'm with our kind. audience? Yes, thank you. Well, I have a webpage called ashenden.org. Uh, and on YouTube, they can find me under Ashenden Scripted or with my colleagues who are really, I'm far better as one of three than I am by myself. Uh, and you look look for Catholic Unscripted. And um, I, I have two really excellent colleagues, Mark and Catherine, uh, and I'm it's a, just a bit a huge honor for me to work with them. And I think what the three of us do is we we cover um, we we cover more more ground than one person ever could in terms of complementarity and, and different mm. insights and gifts. And so uh, um, so Catholic Unscripted is one of the mo- the ventures I'm proudest to have been involved in. I I like it very much, and I. I hope other people will find it and support it. It's it's and and most of all share it. I think one of the things we ought to do, part of our evangelism, when we see something on, on the internet, is say to the Lord, Lord, if it's good, who could do with this? Who, who could I send this to? That, uh, and and, you know, although that's how algorithms work anyway, the internet works like that through through likes and sharing. We can, we can help form the algorithms by by deliberately sharing it. So, so, so do please find out Catholic Unscripted and come and share it. And otherwise, I'm on ashenden.org and I write for the Catholic Herald. Fantastic. And uh, that, for all the bad things about the internet, that's the one good thing is that we have a yeah. lot of great tools of evangelization. So let's, <laughs> let's, yes. let's go win some souls for Christ. Gavin, thanks again. It's been a, an honor and a pleasure. Thank you very much. God bless you and hope that we can chat again soon. David, thank you. God bless you. God bless all those who are listening. Bye for now. Thank you again to Dr. Gavin Ashenden for joining us on this episode of the Catholic Connect podcast. And you know, this is a hopeful message that we want to bring to the world. We want to also make sure that people are aware of what's going on in the church, but we also don't want people to be worried or let it occupy too much of your day. We just need to pray. We need to be in a state of grace. And I was just thinking of Padre Pio's words of pray, hope, and don't worry. Worry is useless. God is merciful and we'll hear your prayer. So whatever happens in the outside, even in the Catholic Church, if there's some things going on that can maybe disrupt our spirit and disrupt our joy, remember to turn to prayer, turn to Jesus Christ in the sacraments, and remember that this is a, a big family that we have and a good family that we have, and we are all striving for holiness. And sometimes when people go off that path a little bit, well, we need to, in fraternity and charity, correct them and bring them back to the truth of Jesus Christ. So again, thanks to Dr. Gavin Ashenden for the great insights that he has provided. And a thank you to you for listening to the Catholic Connect podcast. Follow us on X, on Facebook, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your fine pods, whether that's Apple, Spotify, we're all over the place. So thank you for listening and thank you for subscribing as well. And remember Catholics, we know what we've got to do in order to be a beacon of light in this fallen world and to clear up the confusion even within our own ranks, and that is to live life in a state of sacramental grace. Everything becomes so much more clear when you're going to confession regularly and receiving the Eucharist worthily. So let's go to confession at least three times every year. Every Lent, every Advent, and any time you're in a state of mortal sin, don't even spend a second of your life there. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everyone. God bless. Chat with you very soon. 